Hi, I'm Ed Whittingham, and you're listening to Energy vs. Climate, where my co-hosts David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I debate today's energy challenges, highlighting the Albertan and Canadian context. If this is your first time joining us, Energy vs. Climate is a live webinar and podcast that drops every other week. Visit energyversusclimate.substack.com to register for updates and get exclusive access to join our live webinars, ask us questions, and engage with us directly. What does the U.S. election mean for Canadian climate and energy policy? To help us make sense of that question, we have special guest Leah Stokes. Dr. Stokes is a Canadian who lives and teaches in the U.S. She is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her focus is on energy, climate, and environmental politics, including voting behavior. Leah is the author of Short-Circuiting Policy, a book that looks at the role that utilities have played in promoting climate denial and rolling back clean energy laws. Now on to the show. So this may be only our eighth webinar in our Energy versus Climate series, but it's probably the uh, 5,000s worldwide that is debriefing the, uh, the still unresolved U.S. election. But as far as we know, ours is the first to look specifically of the implications of the, uh, the presidential election for Canadian energy and climate policy after the election. So if, if that's what you're interested in, you've come to the right place. And uh, you've especially come to the right place because we have a very special guest with us today, uh, joining us, Dr. Leah Stokes. So Leah is a Canadian who lives down in the U.S. She is an assistant professor of uh, political science at the University of California, Santa, Santa Barbara. She focuses there on energy, climate and environmental politics, uh, including looking at voting behavior. So uh, having her on the show today is very timely. She is the author of a book called Short Circuiting Policy, which looks at the role that uh, utilities have in promoting climate denial and rolling back clean energy laws. And Leah, if uh, we had more time uh, on another show, I could talk about uh, the incumbents here in Alberta and uh, what they're doing to block investments in clean power. No, (laughs) No. Uh, unbelievable. I know who could ever suspect it. Prior to uh, teaching at UC Santa Barbara, Leah did her PhD and master's at MIT, and along the way has advised Canadian parliamentarians as well. So we will get to Leah in just a little bit. Now, let's launch the first poll, please. Poll question number one of two poll questions today. Assuming Joe Biden wins the U.S. presidency, which looks increasingly like a safe bet, it will be a net positive for Canadian energy and climate policy. Do you agree, disagree, or you cannot say? Let us know what you think. Okay, while those results are coming in, let's have a conversation. So, in the US, climate and energy policy was solidly a second tier issue in the election. The election, you know, dominated a on a bunch of issues, around a bunch of issues to do with values, to do with the pandemic, halting the recession. But Democrats definitely view climate as a top issue. Um, and the Democratic Party has notably tilted or shifted to the left on climate energy issues. Um, and as evidenced by the Green New Deal and the support it has 
uh, particularly amongst uh, the young base in the party. So let's kick it off, given that it's likely we've got Joe Biden as president. Is their starting point, are they too far ahead of the average American voter? And if they are, how is this going to affect their ability, if they do win, to implement their plan? So this is when I open it up to David, Sarah, Leah, who wants to weigh in first? I think Leah should go first. Yeah. All right. Sure, happy Leah, to start it off. Uh, I don't tend to think about it in those terms, in terms of a, a ideological issue. You know, when we talk about ideology, it's very constructed. And in terms of climate change, you know, why is it more progressive or leftist to say that we want to do climate policy at the scale of the problem? If you want to say, well, doing climate policy alongside other social policies, that makes it progressive, fair enough. But personally, I think that um, it's not really about being left-leaning or something like that. It's about, are you taking on this crisis at its scale? Because as we know, climate change is not a problem I mean, of course, every ton matters, but climate change is not really a problem you can solve, you know, by just making a good effort. You actually have to take it on at the scale of its crisis. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I don't think that Joe Biden is ahead of the American people. We have poll after poll after poll, lots of uh, work by the Yale program on climate change communication, which shows that climate change is a top issue. Fox News on election day was showing 70% of people want more investments in clean energy. Um, exit polls, whether that was from CNN or NBC showed that again, like 70% of people were really worried about climate change. So I think that we've really broken through actually with the American people. And it's not like Joe Biden's stance on mm -hmm. climate change was a secret. They actually ran ads in both Michigan and Arizona specifically about climate change. So I think that the American people are seeing the hurricanes and the fires and all the costs of inaction. And I think that they want their federal government to do something about it. Great. Before we go to David and Sarah, um, I just want talking about polls. We've got our own poll and our results are now in. So is Joe Biden, if he wins, going to be a net positive for Canadian climate energy policy? 55% of you agree, 10% of you disagree, and 35% say you can't say. Well, hopefully by the end of today's <laughs> webinar, you'll be able to say. All right. Uh, David and Sarah, do you want to comment? I'd weigh in with some some data. So so I agree for sure with, with Leah that that many more Americans say they care about climate. They want their government to do something. The question is how much. So Ed opened this with climate is not a one or two issue. So I'm looking at a poll that the Pew Center did, which is a very trusted, careful polling organization that asked the open question, "What's your top issue?" or ranking issues. And on that issue, climate was number eleven. Economy, healthcare, Supreme Court, coronavirus, violent crime, foreign policy, gun policy, blah, blah, blah. Climate change was above abortion, but it was the 11th. And I think I wish that was different, but I think there's something kind of real there that, that this is, we absolutely expect to see much more than we did under Trump. Of course, there really has been a change for people to take climate more seriously, but I don't think there is a broad understanding of taking it seriously at the level that, as Leah said, it would take to really pass the policy to drive emissions down in a serious way. I think we've passed the threshold of most people agreeing it's an issue, but I think we're not close to a broad consensus that it's worth spending a couple percent of GDP on it. Yeah, got you. Sarah? Yeah, so I mean, I guess I'll say 
two things. So, so one thought is sort of how you ask that question, what does it mean for people to be for or against the climate policy? And so, you know, in Alberta, obviously, you have you know, putting forward climate policy is also, you know, at the same time, putting policies or barriers in place to, you know, what is an incumbent industry here. I think for a lot of the US, that's not the case. So when you talk about, you know, something like, um, like Keystone, which of course is, you know, very, very hot topic these days, right? So Alberta government has has promised uh, seven, over 7 billion, um, and, and are on the hook for at least a billion, um, whether or not that that ends up going ahead or not. Um, and I find I'm interested in Leah's take on this, but I my sense is that the 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 pressure on Biden to go ahead with his commitment, for example, to cancel or you know prevent the pipeline from being built, is more than the pressure from anybody that he would feel um, to to continue it, right? And so you have sort of this, you know when it comes to how how much you want to spend in addition that's one question but but you know how strong are the supporters that really want to see you know that project for example not go ahead and there i think that um the, the polling suggests that that is quite strong i mean the other area that that i would point to too and and that comes back david to your point around the economy um you know is is the renewable energy growth you know in the in the middle of the us and down into texas where you know i feel like we've really reached a point where the us and canada has some diverged on that, that you have, um, you know, quite conservative areas of the U.S. that have really embraced the economic benefits that renewable energy can bring. Um, and there are pockets of that in Alberta, but it's not um, kind of bubbled up to the to the leadership, I think, in the same way that it has down in the U.S. So I think that um, that lends on sort of where Biden decides to go based on, you know, who are the loudest people either speaking for or against is important. Gotcha. Uh, Sarah, you started, you took us down the right of way that is the Keystone Pipeline early. I was hoping to delay. <laughs> oh, no. So we don't have a 50 minute conversation on pipeline politics, but we will get back to it. And, and let's get back to, say, red state support of renewables when we unpack the, the specifics of Biden's plan. But for all of you, listen, you're, so Leah, I don't know if you're a dual citizen or not, but you're Canadian living in the US. Sarah, David, you are dual citizens. I hear what you're saying. If you look in compare and contrast with the last Canadian election, you had 63% of Canadians who voted for parties that had ambitious climate policies. And it was solidly a top tier issue. Yeah, on the same kind of open polling, it was number two. Canadians yep. really, really, really care yeah. about this issue. We actually have been doing, so I work with the Yale program on climate change communication and my colleagues at UC Santa Barbara, as well as Utah State, we do these downscaled maps of what do people think in every county and congressional district or every riding in Canada. And when you just put the Canadian data against the American data, they care more, mm. a lot more. It's like much deeper, even Alberta. Alberta kind of looks like an average state in America. It's kind of funny. Um, so you can find that polling. It's on the University of Montreal's website. Um, Eric LaChapelle was another collaborator on that. And so, yeah, you know, I do think Canadians really care. And it's interesting. I obviously have a lot of family and friends in Canada and they, they are deeply, they understand the climate issue. They're very committed to it. They're also committed to other things like banning single use plastics and, you know, trying to live a more environmentally friendly lifestyle. I think I don't know if it's like David Suzuki or what, but there seems to be something in the water in Canada that really makes people care a lot about the environment. 
Yeah, and you're right, Leah. So even in Alberta, but then if you look at the value study, say that say Environment Institute has done over multiple decades, you'll see that based on core values questions, not limited to climate, a whole bunch of things, Alberta tax to the left of Maine. Yeah. In the US. So our most conservative place. And by, by the way, Alberta, when they've done polling up here, 32% of Albertans support Trump in this election. 32% versus 60% Biden. The national average is, you know, 82 to 90% uh, in provinces support for Biden over Trump. So we still, where we sit in Alberta, we tack to the furthest right in Canada, but left of Maine. So, uh, yeah. Um, it, who knows why it is that it sticks more in Canada. It's not like we get any more information than I think Americans do, but it is. And for a couple of elections now, it's been a core issue. And I tend to agree with David. I think it's not just second tier, it's probably third tier. And the Biden presidency is going to have to fight if it's got this massive agenda to implement it, if it is too far to the left of its voters. And it's just not such an issue of concern. But let's, let's leave that conversation. That was sort of a, a, an opener. Let's get in now. So Leah, just almost for formality's sake, or perhaps now purely as a history lesson, it looks almost certain that Joe Biden's going to win the presidency, but there's still a pathway for Trump in winning. So let's start. What is Donald Trump's climate energy plan in the great unlikelihood that he retains the presidency? Well, I don't know. I think uh, we might agree that it would be easier to get like full economy wide net zero emissions in the next decade than for uh, Trump to uh, win the presidency at this point. <laughs> That's maybe where we're at. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump is a climate denier. Uh, he went to California this uh, summer during the terrible fires that we faced all throughout the West Coast, including into Canada. And he said in front of our governor, Governor Newsom, that, you know, the scientists don't really know that climate change is happening. Um, both him and Mike Pence consistently said that, whether that was on the debate stage or in speeches, um, they deny that climate change is real. I've, I've, that's been very disturbing to watch um, because we've made a lot of progress, I think, in terms of making it clear that climate denial is perpetuated by industry groups and that they are doing it to make money. And we've, I think, moved in some ways politicians away from just being straight up climate deniers. Um, and to see Republicans go back in that direction is terrible because, you know, Donald Trump has a very large platform. Even when he's not president, he's going to have a big platform. And for him putting it out there, we know from political science work that co-partisans, meaning people who share the same party as like Donald Trump, so Republican people in the electorate, they listen to what he says and they drink it up, right? And they believe it too. So my concern is that that may polarize some opinion around climate change after we've really made a lot of progress over the last couple of years. So Donald Trump has no plan on climate change except to roll back a lot of environmental regulations. And then what is Joe Biden's plan? Well, Joe Biden ran um, on the most ambitious platform in American history on climate action. I think a lot of people don't know that, but it's true. He committed to try to um, clean up the power sector by 2035, which is faster than any state law in the books in this country. He committed to try to spend $2 trillion on climate action over the next uh, four years. And he committed that in that investment, 40% of it would be flowing to disadvantaged frontline communities, um, which is 
a pledge that the environmental justice community has been very active in trying to push, whether that's in New York State or other places across this country. And, you know, I, I was not initially a Biden supporter, um, but I am extremely enthusiastic about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And I'm not just saying that, like, I actually deeply believe that they ran on a climate platform, they're going to govern on a climate platform, and that, you know, this is a top, top issue for Joe Biden, because he says that he says that all the time. And so I'm really excited about their um, leadership potential. Great. Okay. I want to unpack uh, certain points of the Biden plan, but uh, David and Sarah, maybe I'll start with David. So let's get your take. What does a Biden presidency mean for Canada and specifically Canadian energy and climate policy? I think it will. It'll definitely push Canadian government to do a little bit more for sure than under a Trump presidency, obviously. I think a Biden presidency will mean significantly more action than we would have seen under Obama, uh, basically because the business community's moved and there's much more acceptance that some climate action is really needed. My view is not so optimistic as Leah's. I, I, I think that the the chance of, of the really kind of strong action that you need if you were serious about driving emissions down that fast, I don't see that happening under Biden. I just don't think he won a mandate that allows that. It's not just that he, he probably didn't win the Senate or if he did win it marginally. I think that, you know, in Western democracies, if you really want to do something hard, and the fact is, the climate kind of climate action we actually need to live up to these. It's easy to make commitments saying, you know, I'm going to start exercising really often. I'm going to meet this commitment 10 years out. Those are, those are basically not worth anything. What matters is what politicians actually do in their turn, the hard stuff. And, and if you want to be on track to really drive emissions down, you need to really break some eggs. You need to be spending this, not spending directly, mostly by regulation, but, but you need to be directing through regulation and some spending, something of order more than 1% of GDP. I don't see any realistic prospect they're doing that because they just don't have a mandate to do it. I think that happens after an election in democracy where climate was very near the top of the agenda and the party that won a climate action wins. Then you have a mandate to really do some hard stuff. I'm not seeing that. As much as I'd love to see it, as much as I, Biden may sincerely believe it, I just, 48% of American voters were pretty happy with who they had the last four years. Yeah, but it, so to, to push back on that, he wins the presidency. Let's say he wins the Senate as well. I know that that's still very much a, a TBD. We might not know till January with George and what. He has had in his platform a $1.7 trillion commitment with far reaching. It's got even bigger, but yeah. It's $2 trillion. Yeah. Oh, great. It's a, what, sort of carve off that for all the votes that apparently he's buying in order to get him over. The no, hump. no vote buying. <laughs> sorry. No, but, but sorry, David, I mean, he won. He's got this massive pledge in his platform. Let's say he has the Senate. What's stopping him? I think the issue is what's labeled climate. So I really want to give Sarah a chance to jump in, but let me maybe point a little bit. So will there be a big stimulus? Yeah, everybody wants a big stimulus, but but what's really climate? So there's a, things that, there's a set of things you do if you just had your eye on the tons. And there's a set of things you do if you kind of generally want to do social stuff that you can kind of label as climate, but it doesn't really do that much to cut emissions. So there's a bunch of stuff that is in this... Um, yeah, you know, that it relates to to giving underprivileged communities more money or to public transit or, you know, solar power on people's roofs uh, uh, that, that haven't been able to afford it. Those are frankly not things that are that rational to do to cut emissions. They may be good for other reasons, but they're not effective ways to spend your money to cut emissions. 
Gotcha. Okay, Sarah. So Leah, let's say enthusiastic. We'll say David is cautiously pessimistic. Uh, Sarah, where do you fall? I think I'm in the cautiously optimistic side of things. (laughs) So um, a, a a few thoughts on that. So I mean, one, you know, even if climate isn't or wasn't a, you know, first or even second tier issue, it really, you know, you can't claim that it was hidden, right? I mean, yep. in the last debate, Biden talked about we're going to transition away. Uh, I'm going to get the quote wrong, so I won't say it exactly, but basically he talked about a transition away from oil. And so from oil and gas, both. From oil, and gas. Yeah. From oil and gas. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, anybody who wants to come and say, you know, you, you can't do any of this because there was no mandate, you know, this was a secret or something, you know, that it's really not true. Um, and I think that also, you know, I, I I was doing a lot of work in the U.S. in the in the Waxman Markey days. So I guess I still wear the scars of you know that failure and and the painful experience that that was. Um, but I think that the you know the climate community has gotten a lot smarter since then. Um, there's also been, frankly, just a lot more time has passed. And so solutions have become cheaper, but also people have gotten smarter about what kind of policies work to make this happen. So I, I agree with David in that, you know, I don't think that necessarily what it's going to be, uh, you know, Biden's sort of general stimulus plan and, and fixing the country because there's all kinds of issues that need to be dealt with. It may not have climate as, you know, the main focus there. But I think there's a lot of ways that climate are going to be integrated in that. I think you're going to have the right people around the table who know how to make the choices to do that. And I think that you have, you know, the U.S. and and especially through things like the Department of Defense has, you know, kind of a, a, a checkbook that, you know, Canadians look at sometimes enviously in terms of the power to actually deploy stuff and, and get things done. And so, you know, that combined with the ability to, you know, work with states like California who, um, you know, do have a very clear mandate to move ahead on things like uh, like automobile um, uh, standards um, and have the, the size to lead the country. Like I see a, I see a path for, you know, a group that is prepared and ready to actually make real change. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, I want to get into, I want to unpack parts of uh, the Biden platform, but uh, before I do that, I will share with you because uh, I conducted a bit of a call around and talking to senior government of Canada officials, some of whom may be watching as we broadcast live to this and they shall remain nameless. But uh, it was completely non-scientific. You could count it just on the fingers of one hand. But here was their take on a Biden presidency. And this is in the last 24 hours. So one, whereas in 2016, everything got harder. Everything they expect will get a little bit easier on climate energy policy. They see it as a positive step um, that they see lots of opportunities to realign Canadian policy. And a couple examples, one in vehicle emission standards where um, if the feds tie themselves to what California is doing and Biden hits some of the the things that he's hoping to hit, that then Canada and the U.S. can move in lockstep again, whereas before there is contemplation, a continued Trump presidency, that Canada would, in an unprecedented way, uh, break on, on things like fuel regs. And I would say, add to that methane, because I was around when Alberta and the then Alberta government in 2015 Uh, came up with the most aggressive or ambitious methane reduction target, which then BC adopted, which then the federal government adopted. And then at an Obama-Trudeau summit during the one year that they overlapped, uh, Obama committed to regulating not just uh, new sources of methane, but existing sources. And at the next Three Amigos summit, 
then they brought on Mexico. And suddenly you had a continental-wide approach to methane until Trump came in. And then that pact was broken. So they see lots of opportunities for that kind of realignment. With a massive caveat from from everyone I talk to and my non-scientific call around, that it actually really depends on what happens in the Senate. And therefore, it depends on how much he of that 1.7 trillion or Leah 2 trillion he can actually spend. And that, of course, with the Senate race at this point, we probably won't know until the Georgia runoffs are done. So there you have it. Live, recent and what the government of Canada, senior official. Live anonymous leaks from inside the government of Canada. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we didn't even have to go to, you know, the fifth level of a parquet to have this conversation. <laughs> Um, Okay, uh, let's get into the deeper dives. Power and renewables. So the Biden campaign commits to full decarbonization of the U.S. power sector by 2035 using a technology-neutral national energy efficiency and clean energy standard. Is it feasible? And then let's talk a little bit about sort of blue state versus red state views on renewables. And that's for those of us in Alberta that, you know, the red state view on renewables would be an interesting comparison or contrast to Albertans' views on renewables. So, Leah, over to you. Yeah, well, this is something I work a lot on. It's kind of my specialty um, and actually I have a podcast called A Matter of Degrees. And we did a whole episode on Biden's 2035 pledge. Um, in that episode, we interviewed Sonia Agarwal, who works at Energy Innovation and was part of the 2035 report. If you could just go to 2035report.com. What they did is they modeled the power sector and they said, can we get to 90% clean by 2035? And they found that, yes, we can do it with existing technology. We'll actually save ratepayers money. And of course, it will save an enormous amount of emissions and air pollutants. And the great thing about cleaning up the electricity sector is that it allows for electrification of other sectors, right? So when you think about climate change, there's emissions, they're coming from all over the place, it's kind of overwhelming. But if you have electricity that's clean, you can use it to power cars, um, homes, even some parts of heavy industry. And so you can actually clean up maybe as much as 70% of our emissions through a clean electricity system. Based on that work that I've done, I do think it's very viable to uh, try to push this hard and to do it by 2035. Um, And in terms of the the red state, blue state divide, what's interesting is that one in three Americans today live in a place that's already targeting 100% clean electricity. And in Ohio, remember a state that voted for uh, Trump, you know, they actually passed a ballot initiative in Columbus that was targeting 100% clean for that city by 2023 during the election. Nevada passed a constitutional amendment targeting 50% clean by 2030. So, you know, there actually is a fair amount of progress happening on renewables, even in red states. Um, We don't have the same laws on the books, I would say, although actually a majority of states, including Republican states, have some clean energy target, even if it's not 100 percent. So I think that this is actually a a really good path forward. And I don't know if we'll see a piece of legislation in Congress, probably not if we don't win the Senate. But I do think that this is a really bold and ambitious agenda that people can rally around. Yeah. And and Leah, just to be clear, so red state support, and I know it's going to differ from state to state, but generally, like you look at here in Alberta, we had a change in government in 2019 and a provincial government that had strong policy and program support for renewables, including government-backed PPA programs, PPA purchase programs. 
new government came in and said, we love renewables, but we're not going to spend a red cent on them. They have to stand on their own. The amazing thing is that with the cost curve declines, that's renewables and and the auctions of the previous government helped to establish that you can build wind and large-scale solar fairly cheaply in a very competitive way. Is the red state approach that will set these targets, but then we're not going to spend a red cent on them, that renewables just have to stand on their own strength? I mean, maybe the production tax credit and the investment tax credit, which are the sort of backbones of how a lot of renewables have been built in the United States, they've been championed by Republican governors, by Republican representatives and senators, people like Chuck Grassley. Um, You know, this isn't just something that Democratic states want, because you have places like Kansas, for example, that are very windy states that have Republican parts of that state that benefit a lot from uh, wind development. The same thing could be said for Texas. So I don't know if we'll see extensions of the tax credits, but I think that's a possibility with um, Republicans. And, you know, as you said, renewables are getting so cheap that they can be built maybe without incentives in some cases. And what's really important about getting rid of Trump specifically is that not only is he not for, you know, supporting clean energy, he's actually for kind of taxing it. So there have been changes put in place under the Trump administration, like the minimum offer price rule, which basically make um, renewables more expensive. So, you know, at least not moving in that direction will be helpful, right? Like we don't want to be subsidizing coal and not subsidizing clean energy, which is exactly what the Trump administration has been doing, for example, in the CARES Act. So even if we don't get to a place where we're seeing um, tax credit extensions or grants for clean energy, if we can just stop subsidizing the heck out of fossil, then that would be helpful too. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Sarah, let's talk about bring it back to Canada. So if... The U.S. now is a full decarbonization target by 2035. Should Canada have the same target? And as context, Canada right now has it's a different, more nuanced target. It's zero emitting sources. Uh, 90% of uh, Canada's electricity will be from zero emitting sources by 2030. Should we move to full decarbonization? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's clear that we should move to more. And of course, you know, the the math on decarbonizable electricity across Canada is is highly regional, right? So you know, we're we're a good way to that ninety percent because of um, some provinces that have a lot of hydro. But of course, here in Alberta, um, we still have a highly carbonated uh, electricity sector, we could call it. Um, and I think one one important lesson from the twenty thirty five report, and you know, some from some recent work that was also done um, by the Pemina Institute as well, which looked at the question from a slightly different way. So rather than looking at that end target and, and doing that modeling, but actually just saying, well, if you were going to build the next incremental bit of um, electricity uh, in the province, what would be the cheapest option? And by far and away, even in Alberta with our you know very, very cheap natural gas, um, the a clean portfolio, so a mix of wind and solar with a bit of battery and a bit of um, demand response to, to kind of smooth that out was the cheaper option. And so I think we really are... Um, I. I feel like we're really challenged in in Alberta, and I would put Saskatchewan under that umbrella too, into still this mindset of, you know, we have 30% by 2030 as our target in Alberta, and people worry, and I can see Leah laughing, um, which is which is fair, and, and people are genuinely worried that like, oh, you know, we just, we couldn't get to 50%, it would be technologically impossible, you know, we wouldn't be able to manage the variability, um, and, and that's just simply not true anymore, and so I hope that, you know, seeing that 100% target or 90%, whatever it ends up being by 2030, 
1835 does get people to think a bit more deeply around um, around Alberta. And, and particularly before we go and build out, you know, we, we do have the coal coming offline, which is great. Um, but before we go and build out, you know, a, a bunch of na new natural gas infrastructure that's going to come um, at a big cost to uh, to ratepayers in the province, um, that we look more seriously at an increasing that that target. Gotcha. Can I inject okay. some skepticism? U.S. electric power grid is a little over half a terawatt of average power now. If you're going to do it all by renewables, you know, with capacity factors of order 30%, you're doing some mix of wind and solar, you need, one, you know, 1.5 terawatts, 1,500 uh, gigawatts. Um, and you need to figure out how to manage variability. And I think you're not going to do seasonal variability with batteries on that timescale. I just think that probably that's effectively zero. So you'd have to be really serious about doing something else. There are clearly things you could do. And you've got to build transmission infrastructure. And that means you've got to change the way transmission infrastructure gets built, because right now we can't permit it. So just to put that in perspective, if you want to build uh, uh, 1,500 gigawatts in over 15 years, that's 100 gigawatts a year. You know, Right now, well, last year for solar in the US, we put in 13 gigawatts DC. So you can't count that actually, more like 12 or 11. I think people are, you know, it's easy to, do some modeling studies, but what it actually means step-by-step step, to really do that, I believe it is actually just in the bounds of possible. I believe you could decarbonize at least to like, you know, better than 90% by 2030. That's doable. 2035, I think is doable. But I think that entails a level of commitment that I seems almost inconceivable under Biden because you actually have to pass not just a little bit of subsidies. You've got to pass hard laws that change the way you cite infrastructure. You've got to be able to actually build a bunch of new pumped hydro, for example, if you're going to manage it, you're, you're not going to do batteries at that scale. And and I don't see that level of power to do that. Yeah, but David, so on that, I'd like to get, uh, you've worked in, in direct air capture, carbon capture and storage. There's something called the Section 45Q, which is a production credit in the US. It's proving to be highly successful insofar as since the last time that uh, the US government topped up the rates, there have been 25 new projects announced on the books at various stages of development. Some of those projects are for the power sector. So it might not all be renewables, but we're still looking at decarbonized power, say through combined cycle natural gas with carbon capture. Could we get there and have a chunk of that zero emission power coming from that avenue and renewables? It doesn't, it, so we agree, it doesn't violate the laws of physics, but yep. when you think when you layer in cost and say stakeholder uh, expectations, could you get there? Technically, yes. But I think the question is, is it plausible that a Biden administration over its first four years, let's say, would actually be putting in the level of things that I think require not just a little more incentives and not just some regular stuff the Supreme Court doesn't block, but actually like a massive new pieces of legislation that are enabling. I, I find it a little hard to believe. I I. I I think we can do much better than we were doing before, but I think decarbonizing that fast is is a level of build out. I mean, remember how big those numbers are, 150 gigawatts a year. Yes, you could do some CCS, but remember, I've got friends that have been working on natural gas CCS plants for 10 or 15 years. There isn't one of them operational now. Gotcha. So okay. I, do, I do know a lot about this topic. It's what I work on. And, you know, the U.S. is on track this year in a pandemic, which I find shocking 
to put in 37 gigawatts of renewables, which is smashing previous records. And let's just remember economic crisis, recession, uh, coronavirus. I'm shocked by that number, to be honest. And so that's a big number. The, num the calculations that I've seen done, there's actually a new report out of Princeton in the last couple of weeks, the net zero report. Um, they're talking like 100 gigawatts of installed capacity a year. I agree that that is obviously a multiple of anything we've ever done before. And as David says, transmission is going to be key to that vision. Um, now, there is actually some money already in the federal government, and I understand it, to do transmission that has never been spent, right? Like we, there, there is money that sits around in bank accounts, basically, in the federal government that obviously the Trump administration has not been willing to expend. And then there is also let's say $500 billion a year of general government appropriations that is like procurement or um, agency spending. And I agree that it's going to be hard to green all of that, but I don't think that we can say that we can't move faster. Certainly having a cooperative federal government is better than having an uncooperative federal government. Can we get to 100 gigawatts? Can we build out all the transmission of our dreams? Can we do executive action to streamline permitting? You know, I don't know what the limits of that will be for sure. I think it is, you know, obviously I've spent the last few days very sad about the prospect of not having Democratic control of the Senate. And I think David's reflections on what that means for a 2035 target are, are real. But I do feel like, you know, that number is not meaningless because it also puts pressure on other states, whether that's California or New York, to maybe speed up their own targets. Um, and I got to say, the, the one thing that leaves me very hopeful is Google. Google actually announced a pledge that they want to have 100% of all their facilities operating with clean energy 24 hours a day, seven days a week in real time. And they are one of the largest energy consumers in the country. So, you know, will they get that done? I don't know, but that's a real commitment. That's going to involve building things and also figuring out the intermittency problem and figuring out how you can manage it across a lot of facilities all across the country. So I feel like we are at least pointing in a better direction now and whether or not we get a specific law on this, um, we can hopefully make a bunch more progress. Just, just one second. No question we can go a lot faster. I did not mean to be that down. I'm just trying to <laughs> how hard it is to go that fast. And, and on, yes. on transmission, yeah, you sit and talk to Ernie Moniz. They were sitting on money to build clean line. The issue wasn't money. The issue was permitting. And the issue is permitting through red states where there are going to be people with shotguns. That's the reality. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I want, doesn't violate the laws of physics, but once you layer in funding and social license constraints and shotguns, yeah. And shotguns. But Leah, thank you for the Google point. Now I feel a little bit better about giving all my data to Google for free so I can sell it out the back door to marketers because it's taking some of that investing in renewables. I feel a lot better. We have a related question. Um, and uh, when I call upon questioners, I apologize in advance if I get your name wrong. It's a related question. We've got another question after that. And I do want to make sure that we talk about oil and gas because that's, of course, very germane to uh, those of us who happen to sit in Alberta. So uh, Robert Tremblay, please, uh, your question and welcome. Hey, everybody. You can hear me? We can, Robert. Perfect. All right. So, yeah, it's kind of on what you guys have been talking about a little bit the last bit, uh, fate, uh, federal versus uh, state leadership. So uh, in the wake of uh, lack of leadership on, from President Trump, many states and local governments stepped up, such as California or New York City, to pass uh, policies like 100% clean energy standards. Biden's targets net zero by 2035. And it seems to me like the effort has been more productive at the state and local levels than passing um, big uh, countrywide policy. 
Um, so how can Biden lead on electricity decarbonization without distracting from uh, effort on passing those same policies at the local or state level? Thanks. Leah, back to you. Do you want to, uh, it's your area. Sure, of- I don't distraction issue. I think that these things are proceeding in parallel in many ways. Um, you know, for example, states have been doing a lot to a couple of them like New Mexico and Colorado to try to use a new financing mechanism to help retire coal plants. That's going pretty well. You know, are there ways that the federal government can help ramp that up? What can we do? We can do more through legislation, obviously, but there are also um, existing agencies and pots of money, like, for example, the Rural Utility Service, which can be used to help retire debt on the balance sheets of coal, of uh, sorry, of rural electric co-ops. And so that's something the federal government can be doing. I think it's more about complementary, right? I don't think that the federal government doing something, it's going to somehow take away from what states and cities were doing. What we were really hoping for was a federal clean electricity standard. And with the Senate not going towards democratic control, that's gonna be difficult. However, we still have the Clean Air Act. We still have Massachusetts versus EPA, which says that the federal government has a requirement to regulate greenhouse gases. And obviously what Obama tried to do with that was the Clean Power Plan, which was a way of trying to do like an executive action version of a clean electricity standard. So I don't know what a a Biden version of that will look like, but at, at the very least it will involve reversing the ACEs rule that Trump put in place, which is moving us again in the wrong direction. So I, I feel semi-optimistic about the power sector and how the federal government can help move it forward. Okay. Um, I want to put a pin in the conversation right now around electricity grid decarbonization. We've got another live questioner, Dan Vinalovich, uh, whom uh, some of us know and know well. Dan, over to you, please. Great. Thanks, Ed. Um, I, I'm curious to, to hear from all of you on what elements of Biden's plan, if if any, you think might have a chance of securing Republican support in the Senate? And, you know, related to that, what what might some of the trade-offs be to secure that support? Great. This is when we get to talk about oil and gas, perhaps. <laughs> so, uh, you know, let, let's look at it. You know, what are the issues? So we talked about electricity. There's oil and gas, you know, it's, there's their EVs, uh, hydrogen policy, Carbon capture, nothing about carbon pricing. What could possibly get bipartisan support the way back in the days you went uh, mentioned your bill, Sarah. I remember being in D.C. around, uh, it would have been Warner Lieberman when that bill was released. Yep. And at the time, that was the latest and greatest and something that thought um, had bipartisan support. Then it went on to die a long, drawn-out, grisly death. So what could get that support? So I'll, I'll throw one in the mix, um, bringing it back to a topic we had talked about a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, but around development of critical minerals um, and the, the metals and minerals that are needed to build out um, the, all the all the wind turbines and solar panels we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, there, there has been a bipartisan interest even before uh, this election around, um, you know, developing the U.S.'s capabilities, whether it's in, you know, more in the rare earths, but I think also uh, increasingly, you know, thinking about things like lithium and and nickel and others. And so I think that there's the potential for, um, 
you know, the, the kind of mining part of uh, and, and resource extraction piece of a plan um, to really get bipartisan support, which then becomes, you know, the, the sort of um, the, the source of materials to build the um, build out what's needed. So at the risk, uh, Sarah, of redoing our episode from, what is it, two episodes ago? <laughs> is this an Alberta, is this an opportunity for Alberta? If you get that bipartisan support, will we have an easier time shipping our, our uh, you know, our precious metals and uh, sorry, precious materials and uh, minerals for clean energy down to the south than we do our oil and gas products? Definitely. I mean, even even now, there's uh, there's agreements between the U.S. and Canada uh, to work on this. You know, not a lot has really happened until now. Um, but I think there is, uh, you know, at the at the federal level, there's interest. I think that the um, you know Alberta and Canada more broadly have a big potential to uh, be selling those those materials and, and shipping those materials instead of the oil. Um, you know, if we see a decline there, um, so so I think that's a huge opportunity uh, and something that you know could very much go again, go ahead with whatever Congress uh, looks like. All right, David and Leah, your bold, fearless uh, predictions, what could get bipartisan support? I have one that I think is easy, which is really big increases in in clean energy R&D and even in some climate science. So I think, to be clear, my long-term view is that often a big R&D push is an excuse for an action, and that really we just should deploy. So I'm not one of these people who says sort of R&D heavy, but I think the reality is it's relatively cheap. And it's something that's easy to get both sides to agree on. So I could see a really big increase. And you know, often the, the sort of environmental left doesn't even want to support particularly more climate science because we assume the science is settled. But I think uh, there actually is cause to really do more. Like, why are we not spending a billion dollars a year to really try and figure out what will happen to West Antarctica? Right now, we have like handfuls of people working on this. And I think I could see that really getting a lot of traction. And there will be certain stuff like CCS for sure. Yeah. Okay. Leah? Yeah, I don't think necessarily, well, Republicans, I would say Mitch McConnell is the problem more than it is every single Republican. You know, Lisa Murkowski tried to put forward an energy bill in about February of this year, and she couldn't get the bill any attention because he refused to let her. So, you know, it's been sad to see how much fossil fuel money has really made its way into the Republican Party and particularly into the leadership, certainly into Donald Trump's decisions about who we put at various agencies, right? These are literally lobbyists for the industry who then decided, who then went and ran the DOE or the EPA or whatever. So, you know, I don't feel like there's no hope. It's been sad because we haven't been able to find very many champions, but in part that's because the leadership has not been providing any space for them to do any work on this issue. So certainly my friends at the Niskanen Center, which is a right-leaning thing, tank that does a lot of climate stuff you know they always say that they've got their they know there's some people willing to vote on it i believe when i see it but you know i'll be somewhat optimistic and i do think you know we always talked about infrastructure under trump trump was incompetent and unwilling to do anything but um maybe we could see infrastructure and biden unlike trump is a person who likes compromise who wants to work across the aisle who has a really deep history of bipartisanship and i'm i think that's actually going to turn out to be a huge asset now mitch mcconnell again as i said is a problem because he might not let anything get going but I think we can find Republicans willing to act on climate change. Um, What they'll be willing to do, I don't know. But the federal government is going to have to pass a couple bills. And maybe Nancy Pelosi through the House can get certain parts into the House side, and then we can get it 
you know, through um, Congress overall. So I'm not totally pessimistic, but I, I don't know. Maybe it'll be coming through an infrastructure bill, a general budget bill, a coronavirus relief bill. And as David said, maybe there'll be kind of like climate greening of other things we were going to do otherwise, as opposed to super perfect deep emissions cuts policies. But you know what? We take what we can get. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the climate movement for you. We, we take what we can get. Yeah. And, and so I jokingly said when I introduced the question, we won't get bipartisan support on carbon pricing. And it's hard to get that in Canada, right? Although deeply conservative provincial governments have come to power and Doug Ford in Ontario, um, Jason Kenney in Alberta, and they have not rolled back industrial carbon pricing regimes. But why in the U.S., and we talked, we reminisced about the good old days of Waxman Markey and Warner Lieberman and Kerry was in there for a bit. And there was talk about bipartisan support. Why is that completely off the radar screen so far that, that Joe Biden has this $2 trillion commitment and carbon pricing really doesn't figure in? What happened? When, it's, when up here in Canada, we'd say it's one of the most important tools that you need to combat climate change. Well, I'm happy to to comment on that. I mean, Joe Biden has a deep commitment to not raising taxes on the middle class and not raising taxes on anybody who makes $400,000 or less. Um, and the fact is carbon pricing raises taxes on those people, period. Um, you know, we, when we think about the transition, we have to think about who's paying. And there are choices, there are distributional choices about whether or not we put it onto the government balance sheets, through taxpayer revenue, through debt, or we put it onto rate payers. And um, I think that there is a concern, particularly in this moment, I don't know if people have been following it, but millions of people, record numbers of people across the United States are in arrears on their electricity bills. They are um, being threatened with shutoffs. In fact, right before the election, moratoriums in a number of states in terms of shutoffs got lifted, including in a lot of swing states, actually. So I think the idea of raising people's energy bills during a deep economic crisis, um, during a pandemic, I don't know if that's going to be on the table. I personally think it's going to need to be more carrots than it's going to be sticks. Um, so that, that's what I think about it. But you, so I understand that, Leah. You sound very much like a conservative voter, or you sound like Aaron O'Toole, the new leader of the conservative party. No, I Canada. don't at all. I sound but, like somebody who whoa. cares. About no, I'm not saying, hey, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that as a pejorative. Yes. But, <laughs> I know so, who that is, being Canadian as I Yes, am. I know you do. <laughs> So to be clear, it's not a pejorative, yes. but so where's Biden then on, on, well, I just think price? you can critique carbon pricing from multiple ways, right? You can critique carbon pricing from a, I don't want to do anything on climate change perspective. You can also propose climate carbon pricing from an, I don't want to do anything on climate perspective because you say, oh, we'll do this thing. We'll do this thing, knowing it's never going to get done or that it's going to be unpopular. You know, I've written a whole long essay on this topic um, called The Trouble with Carbon Pricing in the Boston Review. But in general, I take income inequality very seriously. And I think that the problem with carbon pricing is that when you have massive income inequality and keep in mind, the United States does not have the same kind of social safety net that Canada has. Right. Like people, people who are dealing with massive income inequality and don't necessarily have health care and don't necessarily have a safety net to, to catch them, you know, those increases in the bills can mean even more in the United States. So I think it just has a potential to be very politically toxic. Um, so, so yeah, that's what I think. It doesn't at all mean that I don't think we should do things. My proposal is standards, 
you know, like clean electricity standards, investments, federal government spending, and justice-oriented approaches, which maybe, as David would say, aren't going to squeeze as many carbon out, but they are going to address some of these simultaneous crises that we have. Um, so, so yeah, it, it is not at all for to say we shouldn't do things. I just think that that approach may lead to backlash. Got you. Okay, fair enough. Listen, we're, we're, uh, this conversation is flying by. Perhaps some of our Eastern viewers have already cracked beers of the late on this Friday afternoon. I don't want to leave before we've been able to unpack oil and gas and specifically what it means for oil and gas producing jurisdictions, especially up here in Canada, especially where three of us live here in Alberta. So we'd mentioned that during the second debate, Joe Biden promised to transition the U.S. away from oil and gas by 2050. Remember when our prime minister in 2017 said roughly the same thing and actually had to go back and clarify his comments when he was talking about transitioning away from the oil sands. And I didn't mean that. I didn't see any clarifications of Joe Biden's comments after the debate. I saw him solidly sticking by them. But he has also promised to block the, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, go back to Obama-era methane regulations, 500,000 new EV charging stations. What does all this mean for Canadian oil and gas exports? And now, Sarah, we can get back to that Keystone right away that you had us heading down earlier in the chat. So, Sarah, what does it mean? Well, it's funny. I'm usually not the pipeline person, too. I actually have not worked a lot in pipelines on my career. But, um, but, but you know, I'll, I'll sort of repeat briefly what I said at the beginning, which is I think that the hope that some people in the oil and gas industry in Canada have to, you know, find some compromise or, you know, I don't know, in some cases, threaten the U.S. with the big, scary Canadians coming across the border. Um, I, I just don't see a lot of potential there because I see, you know, if I'm Joe Biden and I'm doing that calculation, I've made a promise about this pipeline, which, you know, let's be honest, the pipeline now, it, it, me it means a lot more than just the, the oil that's flowing through it, right? It's taken on this sort of symbolism of its own. And so he's made this promise. Um, you know, he has a lot to lose by walking back on that. And I just don't see what Canada can you know, give him or threaten him with that is equivalent. Um, that, that's how I see it from up here. I don't know how it looks in the US though. Yeah, he has a lot to lose, but do you think personally, like, I don't know, is, is it a policy decision or is it a personal decision from him? Does Joe Biden really believe on principle that Keystone should not be extended into the US? I mean, and look at executive action. You could say he can't back down, but what executive action on that pipeline to date has meant diddly squat, <laughs> you know? Uh, it, it's had actually Trump tried to sign it in to power with executive action, then it got blocked into court. So sorry, I'm, I'm pressing you on that one, sir. I mean, I, I guess I, I sort of think I'd, it doesn't matter what Joe Biden personally thinks about it, but, I, but sort of what he, how it fits into the commitments that he's going to keep to, you know, the, the people for, from the climate coalition that have supported him. And I think that this is one that sort of, you know, if anything, I would say it almost, it has more importance than it deserves in some sense from a, from a GHG perspective. Um, but it's all the more reason that I think it's very hard for him to walk back on that. Um, and so I just, I, I don't see that 
turning around. I also don't, you know, as, as we've talked about too, I don't see that that, you know, making a huge, huge difference in terms of the industry in Alberta either, because I don't think that, you know, fundamentally it's going to be the, the demand uh, falling with a lot of EVs coming on that makes the bigger difference. And I think that that really, you know, the pace that that can happen with the federal procurement um, and all the agencies that can be, you know, basically immediately buying only EVs and what California can do if they, you know, get their waiver and can move ahead. I think that is um, really significant. Uh, gotcha. So David, executives of major energy companies, downtown Calgary, are they excited? Are they walking around fearful, looking like they've just been to a funeral? Does it make a difference? Who is in power in the White House down south? I think I think they're definitely fearful. I, I think I think, yeah, I, I really agree with what Sarah just said. I think, of course, Albertans are in some sense the Alberta oil industry is in some sense correct to say that they were unfavorably made a target because the tar sands really aren't much worse than the other oil and gas, and we treat our workers better than Nigeria, and all that stuff is kind of true. But so what? What would be the upside to Biden in reversing that? The reality is oil and gas is going to go down, and I just want to end there. I think. I think it was actually a really interesting and big deal that Biden was able to say that about transitioning away without walking it back. And yep. we haven't got there in Canada, yep. right? Yep. So it, it, and it's harder in Canada because we depend on oil and gas more, but we haven't got to the point where political leadership in Canada are willing to say, even if it's a long, long way down the road, willing to just be honest about the fact that if we're going to solve the climate problem, we're not cleaning up oil and gas, we are transitioning away from it. Maybe we can argue, maybe it's a whole lifetime away but we're going to transition away from it. And that we haven't got to the spot in Canada where a political leader is saying that clearly. Yeah. And, and where I think we've got to in Canada is you can have major leaders, including like Jason Kenney saying, we are going to transition, but oil and gas will be a part of that transition for yeah. decades to come. No one, I think, um, you know, who is anywhere to the right of, uh, you know, some of the, well, we'll, we'll have some of the, the, the hardcore Green Party members will say that we're transitioning away from the oil and gas industry. Leah, you're from Canada. We tend to obsess about this in Canada and what's going to happen with this pipeline decision. And I've had U.S. Consul Generals joke when they've been up here in Calgary, they get the junior minister for tourism from Nordeg, Alberta, coming and wanting to meet. And they'll talk about tourism to Nordeg, Alberta for five minutes. And then they'll say, what I really want to talk to you about is the Keystone Pipeline and why you should support it. And he would say, you know what? We don't care. Like, frankly, it's, it's a national decision. Canada is that much part of the decision. But what's your take? So it's a Biden. I mean, I think David and Sarah both kind of nailed it. I mean, that pipeline is not getting built, man. It's just not. I mean, that's not breaking news either. It's interesting. In Santa Barbara, we've been fighting oil developments, and they got canceled on uh, Election Day, which was kind of cool, um, because the developers pulled out. Because as Sarah said, you know, the prices are not there. Demand is falling as we get more and more EVs on the road. I mean, that's going to maybe be a long-term trend. And similarly, actually, Texas canceled an LNG terminal a couple days after the election. So where the movement seems to be having a lot of wins right now is in blocking stuff and shutting stuff down. We've had big commitments to shut down coal plants in the last week, too. Um, you know, where we're not winning as much, as David has pointed out, is on like building the new clean stuff fast 
fast enough, getting the transmission lines built, um, you know, scaling up that 37 gigawatts, which is a big deal, but to even more, right? Um, so, you know, and then that's where it'll be hard because um, we need maybe money for that. We need uh, maybe laws. And so it's, it's gonna be challenging. We need local support. But where, where the Keystone XL pipeline is concerned, man, that's been a long fight and that is, that's never happening. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And so good observation, Lee, on where we're at in the movement. Those of us who dabble in public policy change know it's easier to run a no campaign, yes. whether it's no pipeline or even no carbon tax, than it is, frankly, to run a yes campaign. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mika, could you launch the last poll, please? We're just about out of time. One thing um, you could help us with, Leah, is uh, one question we didn't get to is people are wondering how the new Supreme Court composition, how that might affect uh, Joe Biden's ability to implement his climate energy plan. Not asking you to answer that now, but if you know of any uh, thoughtful uh, pieces on it that you could share with us, we'll make sure we'll share that out with our listenership and, and readership. I mean, the only thing I'd say is people should read about the Chevron doctrine because that's a problem, um, amongst other things. <laughs> Chevron doctrine. Okay, well, maybe we can send something out on that. Teaser as well. trailer. Figure yeah. out what that is. You can Google it. <laughs> yes. A teaser for Leah Stokes, her triumphant return to energy versus climate <laughs> a few months from now. Um, <laughs> we would love to have you back. So we've launched our last poll. Will the U.S. under Biden reassume its past Obama era global leadership role? on climate energy issues. The I results... do not know who's voting no to this. Like, yeah, really? how can that be not? Yeah, that's obvious. The I bet he said, he already tweeted. It was one of the first things he tweeted that like, we're going to be back in Paris. But, but Leah and David, the voters are never wrong. <laughs> we have to count every vote here. We so do, gonna... we have to count every vote. People, the polls are open. I the vote, the voters, the voters absolutely are wrong. There's been this really fun stuff. I've seen interviews in the U.S. where people we used to tend to think that people who are swing voters, we revered them as being these smart, wise people who weren't ideological. There have been some wonderful in interviews with swing voters this time, and the answers that swing voters this time are just people who don't give a shit, a clue. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, on this little poll, which we will leave open till the end of the day, and all votes will be tabulated. Seventy three three quarters of you agree that uh, the U.S. will resume its leadership position and a quarter of you disagree. I, I have a positive spin on that quarter. I, I didn't vote, but I, but I think what I imagine some people could be seeing is some of the other countries that are stepping up, right? Oh. And so, you know, yeah. China has made some big pronouncements in the last days yeah. and months. Um, I mean, this one's more of a joke, but I guess Russia was, uh, Putin like or, or ordered his government to find a way to meet Paris to troll Trump or something. I don't know, but them aside, but you know, the EU and, and many yeah. places are, um, are moving forward. So, you know, in so much as the US isn't a leader anymore, maybe that's just because everybody else is, you know, running alongside or even ahead um, not because they're not back in the race. I, and maybe I agree. Canada could move a little faster too, right? Yes. You're here. You're here. And yes, the voters have spoken. They're never wrong. We've counted every vote. In spite, Leah and David were urging me to stop counting. No! <laughs> them. They're threatening to sue me. Stop the count. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Only stop the count in Sesame Street, the puppet. You know, have you guys seen those memes where it's like the count? It's the yeah. only count I'm trying to stop. Yeah, I, I saw right. one of the late night hosts. Uh, they had dueling Trump rallies of both stop the count and keep on counting, <laughs> juxtaposition them next to each other. Anyways, it's it's ludicrous. Leah, thank you so much. Your 
in the belly of the beast in terms of you know the the excitement right now really appreciate appreciate you taking the time to join us thanks, thanks so much for having me on lots of fun to talk all right my closing Bye-bye. remarks give us feedback at energy versus climate at gmail.com Two weeks' time, we will have Green Party, former Green Party Canada leader, i got to get used to that, Elizabeth May, who will join us to talk about nuclear power in Canada. You won't want to miss that. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Energy versus Climate. The show is created by David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and me, Ed Whittingham, and produced by Eva Voynijescu. Mika McFarland provides webinar support. Our title and show music is The Wind-Up by Brian Lips. Sign up for updates and exclusive webinar access at energyversusclimate.substack.com. Interact with us live every other week and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen.